Next guest is a journeyman of the Australian alternative music scene, fronting and having an association with a number of different bands, including Dum Dum Fit, Plays with the Marionettes, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, The Wreckery, and his current formation, Hugo Race and The True Spirit, who have just released their double album, Star Birth and Star Death. It's hello and welcome to Hugo Race. Hi there, greetings. And uh, we'll talk in off air that uh, you're quite happy there, uh, Melbourne, uh, lessening restrictions with this current pandemic, uh, COVID-19, which we've been experiencing. So uh, happy days in uh, Melbourne and in Victoria. Yeah, it's a really big day, Joel, today. <laughs> because um, I think uh, it's been 112 days. <laughs> Pretty much total, total lockdown. And uh, Melbourne's in great need of a little bit of uh, movement and joy at this point. Absolutely. And I guess uh, the double album, uh, Star Birth and Star Death, how's the uh, reception been so far? It's been really good, Joel. We're getting uh, great press in Australia, but also in, in Europe where the band was based for many years. So that, you know, makes sense that we, um, we're getting a, a lot of love from the European music press. I I get the feeling with this release that uh, there aren't so many releases going out in this period right now. And um, I, I get the feeling that people are, are really appreciating the fact that we've dropped a new double album in this moment when there isn't a, a whole lot going on. And it was recorded during uh, Australia's uh, Black Bushfire Summer uh, and I believe mixed uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic when that hit. I mean, did that sort of shape the albums or did that affect, I guess, the direction the albums went in or was it basically already on paper and ready to go? You know, the funny thing with all this is that, um, you know, people have commented that the lyrics on the record, which are, you know, they're not political, but they're politically conscious. I mean, uh, it's talking a lot about the times that we're living in, I think. And people are commenting on how it seems very prophetic, a lot of the material on the record. Um, you know, most of the songs were written before COVID. Definitely they were written before COVID. Um, but the last tracking sessions for the vocals on the record were done in um, December and January. So they were done when there was all that smoke in the air and, and the news was kind of unrelenting on, on the fires. So I think that connection with the zeitgeist was even more amplified by, you know, the, the fires going on in, in the background of, of everything. And, and it, look, it did have an effect we, we'd already finished, I'd already finished writing all the songs by the time that um, COVID came along. So that was just a funny synchronicity, you know? 
And we'll sort of speaking off air, um, you are a part of a Tom White's tribute show, which we'll touch on very soon. But I'll say, I guess now with restrictions sort of uh, easing in Victoria and perhaps be be able to, uh, fingers crossed, get this sort of show on the road and uh, get get a live audience uh, to experience the double album. Yeah, look, we're really hoping that uh, all the work that's been done in Australia to contain the spread is going to pay off and allow people to come out and enjoy live music shows and allow us to to perform them. You know, there's been, I don't know about where you are, but there hasn't been any live performance in Melbourne for, you know, the better part of six months. So I think there is, you know, people really want to reconnect with that feeling that only live music can deliver. There's something about... uh, performance and electricity and bands and a crowd that's that's very cathartic for everyone involved so the best case scenario looking forward to the tom Waits shows um is that it'll be a real rejoicing of people to to hear the tom Waits catalog hear it live and and to share it together the venues will be spaced so people won't be rubbing up against each other anytime soon in public spaces but they're fairly big venues i think they're pretty much sold out because they're they're running at something like one third capacity so you know a, a six seven hundred capacity hall is going to have 200 or 150 people in it these are the first small steps towards you know getting back to some kind of normal musical life and those, Joel, those shows for the Tom Waits project to set up for um, April, if I remember correctly, late March or April, the, the True Spirit is uh, attempting to perform live uh, as of December. I think December 5th is our proposed record launch at Swamplands in Melbourne, on Melbourne's north side. And that's a uh, perhaps a 200 capacity room, so it'll probably be limited to 50 people or something like that. It's, it's going to be weird. I was just talking to mates in Europe on Skype who've come back from doing a run of shows and the shows that they performed were to masked audiences. And they said this is quite a new spectacle to, um, to contemplate from the stage, the masked audience. But at least they got those shows done uh, when they could, and of course, there are very, there are really no shows going forward in, in Europe at, at this point in time. It, don't you think it's very, it's not coincidental, but very synchronistic that on the day that Melbourne's lockdowns lifted after so long, they're locking down the whole of of Europe, and you know, it's it's a really mm. global, really global issue. This whole thing, and. and this seesawing between us going that lockdown and them. I hope this doesn't continue indefinitely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you might have a different opinion, obviously, being in Melbourne, which has been in lockdown, I mean, not once but twice. But I think uh, if you sort of look as a whole, I think Australia's done fairly well to contain it as it is. I mean, because you look at yeah. the likes of Europe where, I mean, you only have to go sometimes to travel 20 minutes down the road and you're, you're crossing a border into another country. Yeah. So, 
I mean, you know, and this thing sort of spreads like wildfire. Um, so it's sort of, uh, it's no wonder how, I mean, that Europe is basically going into a lockdown again and other countries are in similar positions. But I think hopefully if everyone sort of, you know, wears masks, uh, you know, washes their hands and, you know, if they are feeling sick, get tested, uh, you know, hopefully we won't find ourselves in lockdown or, you know, bend the curve uh, every day. Uh, I think a donut, I think uh, that seems to be the, the new meme going around now is uh, the donut uh, to signify zero. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The donut, the holy donut. I, um, you know, Europe's this giant crossroads with borders everywhere and, all kinds of ways in and out of countries. You've got countries that have got borders with seven or eight other countries and they're going to have to find a system that, that works for them. In Australia, we're very fortunate in some ways because you know we're a giant island and we can enforce our own borders in a way that small European nations can't. So I guess they're their way through the pandemic will be different. It'll be a different route to the, the road that we're going on in, in Australia. And it, like, it's good to be positive, realistically positive about everything, but 2021 could see the opening up of, of life as we used to know it in Australia in a way that isn't possible anywhere else. And um, we will once again be the envy of the world. You say it will be weird, but I think a benefit will be there'll be more intimate live performances. Like you said, you know, you maybe a couple hundred or from like 50 or upwards, depending on the venue, but there'll be more intimate type of uh, performances. And I mean, sort of gone are the days of just the experience, I guess. Uh, I guess potentially be able to interact more somewhat with uh, your audiences and that. So I guess that could be a benefit. Yeah, there won't, there won't be any more mosh pits, will there? <laughs> well, not until I guess uh, until the COVID's completely eradicated, which I think is uh, is near impossible. You were touching on Europe there. I want to get your uh, perspective on Europe, uh, I guess, especially back in the the eighties uh, in a minute. But before that, more closer to home, where you are in Melbourne, what was it about Melbourne uh, and the post punk? scene of the late 70s uh, early 80s that seemed to produce some of Australia's greatest artists I mean there's a likes of yourself uh, we sort of touched off there Roland S Howard uh, Nick Cave Mark and Nick Seymour a lot of these sort of uh, influential people that went on to have big careers or some form of impact in the musical art space what was it about Melbourne in your opinion back then I, look I really I really don't have a theory on that to be honest I it was Sydney as well in the 80s. It's like Melbourne and Sydney were both generating a lot of great music and a lot of really original artists. And there was a lot of movement in between the cities. In my band, Plays With Marionettes, which existed from 1981 to 1983 or thereabouts, even in, I think we started touring the East Coast in 1982 and there were lots of places to play. The first uh, Sydney trip we did was with Hunters and Collectors. So we go way back with those people. We've been friends for a long time. And what was really, what felt cool at the time is we've, it felt like we were the only people in that space, you know, creating rabble-rousing music, creating provocative music in different ways. You know, it could have been just the, the violence of, of the guitars and drums or it could have been something about the lyrics or the way the band presented or they had some kind of pseudo-political message or 
or whatever, but it was exciting. There weren't a lot of other people around and there was this kind of scramble to fill that space. And I think that was inspiring to a lot of people. So in the end, these two really big scenes, the Sydney scene and the Melbourne scene, they, they rose up on a mighty wave and the trajectory took, I don't know, maybe 10 years all through the 80s. And it was all of that hard work that we were all doing that generated the street press and that supported the community radio stations and sort of factored into this multi-level multi music culture, which was fairly well established by the, the 90s. Um, and, you know, even in the 90s, the shine was starting to go off it in a lot of ways. It didn't have that raw quality. I read Stuart Coop's book called Roadies last year when I was on the road. It was very, really interesting to read, but I, I was really fascinated by the stuff in it, uh, the stories from road crews working in the 70s when I was still a school kid. And I, that idea of it being a whole new frontier that they were exploring for the very first time came across really strongly in that book. And we benefited from that when we came out of the, um, the, the little pubs and underground venues in, in Melbourne and Sydney and started playing higher profile shows you know one more thing i'd say about that was there was this there was a there was a kind of competition between the bands as to see who could push the envelope further it was a very conscious thing you know you'd go and see a band you'd go wow they they did this thing i was really impressed and so in your own way you think well how can i how can i match that so that kept ratcheting the bar up all through the 80s and you know it's part of the reason why the australian 80s music is still living on it's um it's very uh popular still in europe and in the united states i mentioned nick cave earlier as well uh, you were part of the original incarnation of the bad seeds um is there a particular criteria to be a bad seed um i guess the an attitude towards music you know a willingness to at least when i was um active in the band in the 1980s there was a willingness to explore the experimental side of, of music. And I don't know, probably a certain kind of cool factor that, that Nick invented with the birthday party. That was, I think, part of it too. When I started playing with um, Nick was when the birthday party had split up and Roland wasn't part of it anymore. So I stepped in to play some of the new songs, but also the old birthday party songs. and. Roland actually showed me how to play most of the guitar parts because he was just such a, a great and, and, and generous person. It wasn't like, oh, you know, now you're Hugo, now you're stepping in to play my guitar parts. That's really outrageous. It was the opposite. It was like, well, if you're going to do it, you better get it right because you're not doing it right. And um, I mentioned that also because there's going to be another short run of Roland Howard tribute gigs coming up and that's in February, Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane at this point. And I, like the other shows, I really hope they come off and like the other shows, they're also in quite large venues with small crowds in them. With Roland as Howard, do you think he's kind of like one of the unsung heroes of the alternative Australian music scene? Obviously his affiliation with Nick Cave, most people know about, but I guess as a solo actor, just as a musician by himself, he's kind of uh, a little bit overlooked at times. Yeah. I guess that's true. And when, because for those who don't know, Roland passed away in 2010, 
was at the end of 2009. Yeah, it was the end of 2009, I think. He became, his music became more widely heard and recognised after that, after his passing than it was before, which is kind of a little sad in some ways, but I think that uh, Roland knew that the tide was turning in his direction um, while he was still with us. And he seems to exercise a really strong fascination on the next generation. And we'd have to ask them exactly why that is, but I think he personifies um, some kind of cool, some kind of musical cool factor that isn't really anything to do with Nick. It was always Roland's own thing. And I, one more thing I should say is that the last solo records that he made are really incredible albums that absolutely stand the test of time. You know, Pop Crimes and Teenage Snuff Movie. Um, but he was so... It took him a long time to get those records together, so he released those two records in the space of 10 years, and that was as much as he was willing to do at that time. But I think if he'd known that he had to leave the planet when he did, he might have crammed a few more albums in. But, um, yeah, he, did, he, he was a slow creator. He wasn't one of these uh, prolific uh, songwriters smashing out a record a year. That was not his thing. You were, as I said, part of the Bad Seeds, and I guess that debut album from Her to Eternity, which you uh, co-wrote that title track. I mean, when you look back, could you imagine back then uh, the longevity and the trajectory that yourself and the likes of the Bad Seeds would eventually sort of have on Australian music and around the world? Not at all. It was the last thing on my mind. You know, when, it, when I was in the Bad Seeds, I never really imagined that I'd live past 30 anyway. <laughs> you know, being over 30 was like um, ancient, it was like another world. So there wasn't any sense that what we were doing was going anywhere, really. At the time, there was actually a lot of resistance against, this might be hard for younger listeners to fathom, but in the, um, in the early and mid-80s, there was a lot of resistance uh, against acknowledging Nick Cave as a, as a great artist in Australia. He was um, not that popular with the rock music establishment because he'd thumbed his nose at it, I suppose, to a certain extent, and also because his antics were, were legendary. When we were playing in Europe and then in the United States, I was amazed by how wide his audience was spread out because I didn't know that the birthday party had been as successful as they were because I wasn't there at the time. But still, when I, when I stopped, when I left the band, um, it didn't occur to me that they would be going on to become, you know, like a great institution, which is, you know, what they are now. It's interesting, Aussie bands and artists sort of, you know, back in the day, was there some form of glory to make it? You kind of have to either go to the States or go to Europe. I mean, a lot of bands um, in your inner circle did, whether it be to find themselves or reinvent themselves. Can you uh, talk about the impact, I guess, of Europe I mean, as a whole? I mean, Berlin, from my research, I guess, sort of Berlin, they sort of see music as art and they treat it as such. Was a little, little bit of a culture shock coming from Australia, where you know you're performing in these so-called beer barns, to what Europe would have to offer. Yeah, I mean it was a culture shock, but in a good way. You know, in Germany they had a long tradition of experimental rock music going way back to the 1960s. So.
so although they have their their chart music there and you know just like we do like people do anywhere they also had this other thing uh, which I wasn't aware of before I went to Berlin, which was this incredible history of of really amazing music. I mean, particularly Can. I'm a huge fan of the band Can, and uh, and their influence on everyone that I grew up with is immeasurable. They're one of the most influential bands in rock music, I reckon, along with the Velvet Underground. These two bands explain so much, and the music of Can didn't really have lyrics. It had a vocalist, but he didn't really use uh, words as we understand words. And the songs sometimes had no rhythm. They could be 20 minutes long. They were definitely, on first sight, hard to make friends with. But, you know, we, I found once you started to explore deeper into their music, it was incredibly rewarding. It opened up whole ideas about music that were completely new to me. So I think that was part of the reason why Germany had affection for art rock, punk art rock, whatever you call it. Uh, as to why the bands all left Australia, I think the main reason was if the band had a really clear vision about the kind of music that they wanted to make and how they wanted to present it, they recognised also that this vision and this presentation was not what Australia needed at that point in time. So there, there was an option, you know, you could, and I think Hunters and Collectors did this quite successfully. They started off as a kind of art college rock band on the first few albums, which were great records. And, but then they kind of accepted their fate and began to embody a lot of the values of, of the mainstream Australian rock scene. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying anything against it. It's more that just when the bands or the songwriters didn't really want to change what they were on about. Um, they really had to go overseas because you know how it is here, everything's far apart, there's not that many people, all of these you know, obvious criteria affect how a band can develop in Australia. But it's to our credit that uh, so many um, really original groundbreaking artists have come from Australia, from a place where original groundbreaking music has not always been you know, the, the ideal for, for the music industry itself, which you know, prefers to play safe. But most, because I've lived in quite a few countries in the world, it's pretty much the same everywhere. It's just, you know, there's certain demographics about Australia that influence it in that, in that direction. But having said that, it's not like that was a, um, a burden. It was actually kind of a great challenge that I think a lot of people rose to, you know, to continue to create original music in Australia. And, um, and we're all the, the better off for it, for that legacy of music that all the artists that you mentioned have created. Speaking with Australian artist Hugo Race, whose new album with The True Spirit is out now. You can stream that on Spotify or get yourself a hard copy at hugoracemusic.com. That's the double album, Star Birth and Star Death. After this, we're going to speak about the Tom Waits tribute show happening around the country next year. Rodney Dion Live. Speaking with Hugo Race of Hugo Race in the True Spirit, his new double album, Star Birth and Star Death, is now available. Get your ears around it. And something I have to say, we're talking about, you know, live events and live acts coming back, uh, the Roland S. Howard tribute show and uh, the True Spirit shows happening. But uh, something that came up on my feed and I had to absolutely go, fuck yes, was uh, celebrating the music of Tom Waits. Brawlers, ballers and bastards. Uh, headlined uh, by your, yourself truly there, Hugo Race, uh, making its way around the country next March. 
how did this, I guess, come about to do a tribute show for uh, Tom Waits? It's, it's a fascinating idea. You know, Tom Waits has got this incredible back catalogue of the most amazing records. You have to be a real fan to be across all of the, the music that Tom's put out over the years because he has been really, really prolific. How did this all... It all came out of nowhere, really. I um, was contacted by the Swordfish Trombones band saying, would you be interested in being one of the feature vocalists? And hell yeah, because uh, I really, really do love Tom Waits' music. I've covered a few of his songs over the years just in live sets um, for fun. And, you know, they're very challenging songs. They're not, very, <laughs> they're not necessarily simple. So they've, the Swordfish Trombones band I think uh, are really talented musicians and uh, I've known Rob Snarsky actually since the early 80s. He's one of the other vocalists. And the third vocalist, Peter Fenton, is a, is a Sydney legend who I've not had the pleasure to meet. But when we get together for rehearsals, it'll be interesting to see the dynamics between everyone. And underneath all this, um, I think there's just the, the, you know, the desire to Bring audiences a really entertaining show with really great songs with you know profound lyrics and big emotions in them and and just to share that i'm really looking forward to it and tom waits you are you either get it uh, or you're boring can you describe what is it about tom waits that uh, i mean fans are so loyal to well um he's got a great sense of humor uh like just from memory some of the songs that we're going to be doing include going out west which is hilarious big in japan which is hilarious way down in the hole which is hilarious you know they're they're really extreme examples of the american songbook they bring in these wild stories about our loner individuals in bizarre situations and they use blues and jazz and and folk to tell those stories so he's a great storyteller he he also um has produced some really beautiful and moving songs like downtown train which was a mega hit for rod stewart weirdly mm. enough and um you know cold cold ground and hold on and the, the list goes on so you know romeo's bleeding actually putting together the set list has been very interesting because there's three vocalists and each of us came up with about 15 of our favourite Tom Waits songs and they didn't really overlap very much so we ended up with a list of maybe 40 great Tom Waits chat tracks and then I think the, the band is working out which of those they're going to be able to play because as I mentioned before this is pretty challenging music. It's um, Tom Waits normally worked with really skilled uh, jazz and, and blues musicians so there's all kinds of chord changes going on. <laughs> It's, it's going to be really exciting. And I'd, I mean, I have to double check it, but I think uh, Tom Waits' first Australian experience, or I mean, maybe the Australian public becoming familiar with him was, I think, on a Stan, uh, Stan Lane show, uh, you know, a very popular Don show. Don, Don Lane, yeah, correct. Yeah, correct. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think for the whole interview, he was basically looking for a lighter for his cigarette, and he was, you know, constantly sort of had his head down and... And it was, it's quite funny, and I'm pretty sure, I think Heath Ledger studied that interview or that video a bit to sort of, uh, as well, one of many 
uh, bits of in inspiration to do the Joker. How long have you been singing? You answered that already, didn't you? I've been on the road about seven years. Seven years. Okay, we got that. Seven yeah, years. Right. Okay. <laughs> How does a guy with a voice like that decide to be a singer and succeed? Well, it was a choice between entertainment and a career in air conditioning and refrigeration. <laughs> That's really interesting, right. That's, because Tom Waits does have this fantastic interview persona. You can also see it in, um, I think it's called Coffee and Cigarettes, which is a Jim Jarmusch film where Tom is sitting at a table with Iggy Pop and they're talking, or rather they're not talking most of the time because they can't seem to connect. Iggy's very friendly, but Tom's very evasive and keeps stonewalling, so. Tom Waits isn't giving anything away. Maybe that's one of the reasons why we're doing his music is also, because I think that time he came to Australia on the Don Lane show was the only time he's been to Australia, just once in his life. And it was in 1978 or something like that. So Tom Waits is not an artist who's like toured Australia time and time again. And uh, he never has basically. So maybe that's why we're doing specifically his songs. I mean, it could have been a number of other great 20th century artists, right? But it's Tom, someone who just, you know, he, he hardly plays live at all. And in the last 20 or 30 years, most of his live shows were as part of theater productions mm. rather than just gigging around. I remember I was in, when I was in Europe a few years ago, he did come over to do a tour, but his tour was, I think two shows, mm. one in Paris and one maybe in London and just one night in each city and then gone. So he obviously doesn't really want to hang out and connect with his own audience. <laughs> He'd rather be left alone to make records in the garage. As part of uh, preparation, uh, are we uh, swallowing gravel or gargling gravel? I'll be gargling something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I doubt that anyone will try to replicate uh, the vocals of Tom Waiter. Uh, I don't know. I think you need a lifetime of smoking and drinking gin or... I reckon he also just reaches way down into his larynx and scrunches it up into a ball and then hurls oxygen through it. I think there's a bit of technique in there. He sounds a little bit like Howlin' Wolf. He sounds a little bit like he learned to sing from the great blues singers who were all uh, singing at the top of their lungs because there were no vocal PA systems. So to be a jazz or blues singer, you had to be able to sing louder than a band. And that's why they're always howling, but it became a, uh, a stylistic signature in itself. Um, I've heard Tom Waits speaking and his voice doesn't really resemble his singing voice. Mm. <laughs> I think he, he's got a persona that he, um, he adopts and I know that I can't reach that persona. I'm going to do something, I'm going to do my own take on it. Well, I guess that's the next question as well, as opposed to just trying to do the song exactly. It's, is it going to be more of a, a rendition of the songs as opposed to uh, a carbon copy, so to speak? Well, I haven't met the band yet. I suspect that the band will stick really closely to the existing arrangements. Um, but exactly how myself and Rob and Peter handle the, the vocals, that remains to be seen. That's part of what makes it pretty exciting to be going into this production. There are a lot of songs and I think it's quite a long show. I think um, it's probably about a two and a half show, two and a half hour show with 30 or 40 tracks in it. So it's like a math material. 
know one of the shows uh, in Melbourne is uh, already sold out. Uh, so that is uh, celebrating the music of Tom Waits. Brawlers, ballers and bastards. I love that little tagline there. And uh, as you said, the uh, fist trombone band, uh, the backing band there, that's going to be making its way around the country from late March. Uh, get all your information online. And also while you're at it, make sure you go to hugoracemusic.com to check out that new double album, Starbirth and Star Death from Hugo Race and the True Spirit. Uh, it's a great album. Get your ears around it. And I have to thank you for taking the time, Hugo, for taking the time to speak with us and uh, promote what's happening. And uh, we can actually uh, get out of uh, this lockdown, uh, which uh, is hopefully yeah. going to just get better. <laughs> no, it's really nice um, talking, Joel. It's like there, there hasn't been much conversation around here for months. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Melbourne has been quiet as a tomb all this time. And uh, it's really great that it's over for now. And uh, hopefully it's going to be a great virus-free summer up ahead for everyone. I really hope so. Absolutely. Hugo Race, thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, hopefully I'll hopefully be able to get to one of these shows, uh, whether it be uh, the Roland S. Howard or the Tom Waits, or hopefully we can get the true spirit uh, up in New South Wales and around the country and, uh, and shout you a beer or uh, do a elbow handshake. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> thank you very much. See you.